was uh, thinking last night, um, as Dr. Geyertsen was talking, and he was talking about the uh, the importance of uh, of the call if you're going to go into any kind of full-time pastoral ministry or mission work. And um, it made me think about my call to ministry uh, because he's right about that. Some of the things that will, you will encounter as a pastor are in a measure of pain and agony at some points that what will keep you going is falling back on the moment or the period of time when you know the Lord called you to do this. And uh, mine came uh, between the summer of my senior year of high school and my first year of college. Uh, I had already enrolled in college. I was going to study broadcast journalism. Uh, uh, Most people under 40 now don't remember Tom Brokaw, but I remember Tom Brokaw well, and I wanted Tom Brokaw's job. Uh, As a matter of fact, I figured I would have his job by this point in my life. And um, I had had lots of of my grandmother's friends in my home church who would say I had preached a couple times. They'd be, oh, the Lord's calling you to ministry. The Lord's calling you to ministry. And my dad, who was a pastor himself, uh, he pastored a few small churches in the coal fields. He never, never said anything to me about a call to ministry. And one uh, one week, I... uh, got a call. I, those of you who are United Methodists will know what the lay speaker is or the lay leader in the church. And uh, I was the lay leader. It was only uh, not even quite 18 years old, but I was the lay leader in our church, about 200, 250 people. And our pastor was away at annual conference when I got a call that a guy that I had sung with in the choir, uh, he and I were put on the end together because neither of us could really sing. Um, and uh, Dave had finally succumbed to cancer. Dave's wife, Erna, had babysat me when I was a little boy. I had memories of being at her house, and and Erna had called to ask if the church could send someone because the pastor was gone, and so the secretary called me, and I went to sit with Erna. And I was there for about an hour, an hour and a half, spending time with her. There were some other folks. I don't know your traditions up here, but folks show up with tons of food, more food than you can possibly eat when somebody has passed away. And so folks from the church came in and out, and after sitting there for a while, I prayed with her. And I remember it just like it was yesterday. I walked out onto the porch of her house. Her house was a little house, maybe the size of one of the larger cottages down the road here. And um, uh, I walked out on the front porch of her house, and I could see across the meadow to the Pepsi bottling plant uh, across the way in my hometown. The sky was blue. The sun was shining. And I got just to the edge of her porch and got ready to put my foot down off in the gravel driveway in front of her house. When I, I heard the Lord speak to me, now I the Lord I have never had the Lord speak to me audibly, okay? But that's because, and I, I, this is really important for us to remember, the Lord actually likes to speak to the heart better. Yes. Likes to speak to the heart and the emotions and the mind and the core of who you are as a human being. He's in your core in the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's often how he speaks to us. And, but I felt in my heart almost as if it was audible to me, the Lord say, this is what I created you for. And I knew immediately he was talking about being with someone in the midst of pain and agony and shepherding and pastoring and caring through that situation. And that was really helpful to me because you may pick up on this yesterday or throughout the week. I really like talking in front of people. I mean, I wanted to do broadcast journalism. Like, I really, really enjoy that. And that was an important moment for me because the Lord in that moment reminded me, taught me that this is not about teaching in front of people. What I'm calling you to is caring for people and loving people and shepherding people. One of my favorite books on pastoral ministry says, pastors are not really shepherds. Pastors are sheepdogs. We are the ones who run around the edges and all of the dew that's been left behind, making sure everybody is in the flock where they're supposed to be. And I just wanted to share that with you guys this morning because that's a part, as much as I enjoy this, the most meaningful aspect of ministry for me is when I'm one-on-one with people or in small groups of people if they're in a difficult spot uh, or sometimes just celebrating the joys with people and being with people uh, one on uh, one on one that way. My wife also reminded me yesterday that I mentioned our eight year old, but forgot to mention that we have a 20 year old and the Max 18. Yeah, Sydney's 19. Sydney's 19 will be 20. <laughs> and uh, Max is uh, Max 18. is 18. Sydney is a uh, you guys probably not heard of it. Sydney is a student at Alice Lloyd College in eastern Kentucky. Uh, if you've heard of Berea College in Kentucky, it functions much the same way that Berea does, so she's getting to go for nearly free. And uh, my son will be a student at EKU, Eastern Kentucky University, uh, this fall studying psychology, which is old man studied uh, for a while in seminary, so in the counseling program. So. Anyway, that's just a little bit about me, and so I just mentioned that because 
you know, as much as I like talking in front of people, my real heart's desire is that you'll all be shaped by the Word of God this week. <laughs> and that you'll be shaped by the Holy Spirit uh, as he does that. So I want to read this morning. We're going to work our way through chapter 2 this morning. And so as we did yesterday, I'm going to read all of chapter 2 of Ephesians. And then if you'll be so gracious to lead us in the doxology again. Yeah. By the way, I would just tell you, one of the things that was difficult for me about preparing this week, and I have, I have marveled for the longest time at the guys who preached in the late 1800s and the early 1900s, because they would take a verse of Scripture and talk about one verse of Scripture for 45 minutes, and you would not feel that they had wasted a lick of your time in talking about that one verse. And the older I get, the more I realize how much is sometimes packed into just two or three little words or a sentence of 10 or 15 words in Scripture. So one of the challenges for me this week was cutting this back uh, so that we did, you know, because we don't have time to look at every word. Uh, so I'll try not to do that too much, but sometimes that's what I tend to want to do um, as, we, uh, as we look at this. So Ephesians chapter 2. As for you, you were dead in transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and faults. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Therefore, remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations." His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord, and in him you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. better? Can you hear me now? How about now? No, it's just the volume. Oh, he's good. You can turn it up. How about now? Testing one, two, three, four, five, six. Testing one, two, three, four, five, six. Testing one, two, got good? Yep. I can hear myself a little bit now, so that's good. Um, 
a couple of magazines that I read with regularity. Um, and uh, in one of those magazines, I was looking through their archives recently and uh, found an article, I think it was from 1932 or 1933, that was written by uh, Helen Keller. And uh, Helen Keller, you may know, is one of the most famous blind women in the history of the United States. Uh, she would not have gone on to be the woman that she was had it not been for a tutor named Ann Sullivan. Uh, and Helen Keller later said in life she would have been a spoiled little rich blind girl who could have done nothing for herself had it not been for uh, Ann Sullivan, who was sort of tough as brass tacks um, in teaching her to fend for herself and how to take care of herself. But anyway, in this article that Helen Keller wrote a little bit later in her life, she um, was talking about the whole article, writing this beautiful description of what she would want to see, and she was living in New York City at the time, what she would want to see in New York City if God gave her three days of sight. What would she want to see? And she wrote beautifully about that in a really, really lengthy article. And then at the end of the article, she says to all of her seeing readers, the people who, of course, are reading it because they can see it, she says to them, I want you to, it would do you well to imagine what you would want to see if you only had three days left to see. What would you most want to see? And so what I want you to do right now with somebody next to you is just to share with them what are one or two uh, or three things that you would most want to see if right now the Lord said to you, you have three days of vision left. Well, I want you to, um, if you've had just a chance to share just a few minutes about that, I, you know, I love this because I can tell from this group, you guys could talk all day. <laughs> um, one, of the, uh, one of the things I pondered about when I read this article is how would the Apostle Paul have answered that question? How would Paul have answered that question if we said, Paul, you have three days left, three days of sight left. What would you want to see? And I suspected that on Paul's list, there may have been some things in the city of, of Tarsus, where he was from. Tarsus was not a Jewish city. It was located in Asia Minor, which is today uh, the nation of Turkey. And I, I wondered if Paul thinks like many of us do about the, the haunts and the places where we grew up or the places that are precious to us that we would want to go back and see. I thought, you know, I might want to go back and see the little house on Brown Street in Princeton, West Virginia, where I grew up one last time if I could. And so would Paul want to see the house he grew up in? Would he want to see a couple of friends in Tarsus that he hadn't seen for a while? I, I am pretty convinced that one thing Paul would have put on his list would have been the temple in Jerusalem. The temple in Jerusalem is no place more important on the face of the earth. Still not that to this day, is there any place on the face of the earth more important to a Jewish person than the temple or the temple mount as it is in Jerusalem to this day? And of course, they believe that that was the one place in the Holy of Holies where the, the spiritual presence of God resided on earth more fully and thickly than it did anywhere else on earth. And I can just imagine if they, if they said to Paul, you got three days left to see, you've got to get me to Jerusalem. Somehow I've got to get to Jerusalem to see the holy city and see the temple. And I think it may be surprising, but one of the, th the third thing I think that Paul would want to see would be a local church. I think Paul would say, I want to see a local church. Take me to a community of God's people. That's what I want to see. Now, that may sound crazy, but here's why I think Paul would say that. And it is because in Ephesians 2.10, Paul defines the church this way. And I'm going to share this with you from several different translations because all of the translations tend to do this verse a little, a particular word in this verse a little bit differently. So in the NIV that I read, Paul refers to, we are God's handiwork. 
And when he says we, he's talking about the Christian community in Ephesus. Christians all over the world, but particularly this church in Ephesus that he's writing to. We are God's handiwork. In the New American Standard Bible, it translates this as we are God's workmanship. In the NRSV, it says we are what God has made of us. That's my least favorite of the four I'm going to share with you. My favorite and the most accurate comes from a translation that was pretty popular a few years ago, but has become less popular called the New Living Translation. And it translates this in verse 210 as we are God's masterpiece. We are God's masterpiece. And this is why I think Paul would say, if I've only got three days of sight left, I want to see a local church or two. Because in Paul's mind, if you want to see what God is doing on earth, if you want to see the work that God is up to, you have to find a church and see the church. Not the church building. This is really important because they did not have church buildings. They had homes where they were meeting. When Paul talked about the church, he was talking about the people who made up that community. He says the people who make up that community, that's the church. They are God's masterpiece. And that's why I think Paul would say, get me out to see a local church if I've only got three days left to see. I need to see the people of God who are God's masterpiece. Now, this word masterpiece in the Greek is a word that sounds a lot like a particular English word. It is the word poema. Sound like anything in particular to you? Poema. It's the word from which we get the English word poem. And so this word in the Septuagint, and the Septuagint was a Greek translation of the Old Testament that was used in the age of Jesus. The apostles, Jesus' disciples, would have been very familiar with the Septuagint, okay? And the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And the Septuagint, they use the word poema in the Old Testament to refer to any work that's produced by an artist or a craftsman or specifically to the creation, When the Psalms are referring to the creation of God in the first couple of chapters of Genesis, they use the word in the Septuagint, they translate that poema. The creation is the poem of God. It is the poema of God. In Greek literature, the word poema always refers to fine works of art, but especially to epic poems. Remember I mentioned yesterday Odysseus and some of the works of Homer and the others that were these epic poems. And so what Paul is saying when he says, we are God's masterpiece, he is saying, look, The church is like the rock that God is chipping away and sculpting into something that he is creating. The church is like the canvas on which God is putting his his paint strokes. The church is the poem. They're the words that God is compiling together into a masterpiece that he is writing for the world. The church is God's masterpiece. Now, can you imagine how odd this sounded to the Ephesians? Because as we saw yesterday in some of the pictures that I shared with you, they were surrounded by massive architectural accomplishments of the day. That temple to Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. They had a massive library in Ephesus, which you can, you can find pictures of online. They had these ornate bathhouses. They were fine works of mosaics, you know, these fine painting mosaics. Their floors covered in these mosaic tiles and, and paintings. And then the, the, the literature that they would hear, the theater that they would see, arts and masterpieces were all around them. But Paul says to them, Slaves and free, Jews and Gentiles, men and women, all over the social spectrum, but mostly probably toward the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum. He says, hey, if you want to see what God is up to in this city of 30 to 50,000 people, you look at your little community of 30 to 50. You are the masterpiece that God is painting in this place. You are the masterpiece that God is sculpting in this city. You are the poem that God is writing for the people of this city. And that would have been shocking to them because there were so many things that seemed more extraordinary than their little church. And so I want to give you just one topic again to discuss for just a minute with somebody next to you. And because I'm in Michigan, I've included the Wolverines here. But uh, I know some of you are MSU fans. I knew some of you were going to, that was going to happen. We're good. We're good. Uh, But I want you to think about this for just a minute. When you go through your daily life, what is an organization or institution that seems more impressive to you than your local church? What is an organization or institution on a daily basis that just seems more influential, important, or impressive to you than your local church? If you think of one, just share it with somebody next to you. 
So we have um, we have a very particular answer to this in in uh, in Wilmore, Kentucky, which is just about 20 minutes south of Lexington. And uh, if I were going to put a picture up of something that competes with the the majesty of the local church in our area, I would put up Rupp Arena, filled with uh, 25, 27,000 UK Wildcat basketball fans, um, which we often jokingly say, people will say, where's the largest church in Kentucky? And we'll say it's called Rupp Arena, and it's the church of the Wildcats. Uh, So there are lots of things that compete with the way we tend to think of our local church and the impressiveness and the importance of our local church. And the reality is we do this because we were not always a masterpiece, Right? When you think about even those of us who are gathered here at Bayshore this week and all the amazing things that the Lord has done in the lives of people who are gathered here, we all know that at one point in time, we were not a masterpiece. As a group of people, we were not at one point in time all gathered together painting a masterpiece of what God is doing in the world. We were not always beautiful. And Paul's going to write about that to the Ephesians to remind them of this in very specific ways in the first, ten, uh, the first few verses of chapter 2. So he says to them, As for you, you were dead in transgressions and sins. You may have before, in other words, Sam, before you became a member of this church, a part of the church of Jesus Christ, you thought you were living. But the reality is, even though you were living, you were as good as dead before you became a part of this church. You were on a dead-end path to death. That's where it was going to end. You were on a dead-end path to your eternal end. You thought you were living it up before you became a part of this church, enjoying all the things in the city of Ephesus, the big, the big dinner parties and the bathhouses and the theater. You thought you were living it up. But the reality is you were dead in your transgressions and sins, and they didn't even know it. Then he adds this, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Before they became a part of the church, they were following the ways of the world. And sort of like Dr. Geyerson was talking last night about all of the other leaders of the kings. I may have been in this Bible study yesterday morning, I can't remember, but the other kings that we follow. And uh, that's sort of what Paul is saying here. You guys were following lots of other things. And he says a lot of these things that you were following, these, these leaders of the world, they were actually working under the auspices of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Now, this is really important, guys, because I find that today particularly in a lot of evangelical Christianity and mainline Christianity, that we have actually a very flat view of the world. We actually have fallen for the old enlightenment lie that everything is physical and everything is science and everything is reason. And it dampens our ability to believe in the spiritual realm of the air, as Paul would put it. And we are really unique as Westerners in falling into this trap because I can take you anywhere else in the world that's outside of the American, Canadian, or European context. Go to Africa, go to, go to mo- many parts of Asia, go to South America, and they have no problem telling you that there are spiritual forces at work in the world and that they often experience the work of those spiritual forces at work in the world. We're, we're kind of strange as Westerners in not, not emphasizing that or, or, or being as aware of that as other people are uh, in the rest of the world. So basically what Paul is saying here, you thought a lot of the things that you were doing, the ways you were following before you became a part of this church, you thought they were good things. You thought they were the way to have a good life. You thought they were beautiful things, but really they weren't beautiful things. They were things of the evil spirits, the evil that's at work in the world. 
Then he adds this. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. I want to focus on that word flesh for just a minute because it's an important word for Paul. And Paul will occasionally use the word flesh to refer to your actual flesh. Okay, But he also has a spiritual way, a more more psycho-spiritual way of thinking about flesh in which he's referring to those parts of you that desire the wrong things. Those parts of you that seek to be gratified in the wrong ways. When you think of the song, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, and there's that verse that says, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. What the hymn writer is talking about there is flesh. It's that part of you that desires these wrong things. And so Paul is saying, you didn't even know it, but you were living in the flesh. And your flesh was desiring, it had desires and thoughts that were a part of of the way of death for you. And then he he challenges them with this, this disturbing phrase. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Now, this may not be true of 500 Christians who've gathered for a week of Bible teaching at a camp in, on, on Lake Huron in, in Michigan. But in the rest of the, the world, and in the rest of the, the Christian world, it is really uncomfortable for people to think about the wrath of God. It's real. I don't like to think about it. How many of you like, like to go through the day thinking about the wrath of God? I'd much rather think about the grace of God. But the only way to understand the grace of God is to really keenly understand the wrath of God. And the wrath of God is troubling to many people because they think it just means that God is mean. It doesn't just mean that God is mean. God is wrathful because God loves. God is wrathful because he loves and because he wants to, to destroy and do away with everything on earth that causes his good creation to not be all that he intended it to be. And so when we talk about the great summation, when Jesus comes again and brings all things together, and remember yesterday I said, there'll also be some subtracting. It's not just adding things up. There's going to be some subtracting that happens in the great summation. And a lot of it is going to be the wrath of God poured out against the things that have always been working against his good creation. And he's particularly talking about the spirits of the air, the power of Satan, and those human beings who have become part and parcel of the work of Satan and creating systems of sin and systems of injustice and committing sin and injustice on earth. I, I told my people when we were studying this particular passage a few, week, uh, a few months ago, I said, many of you think you want a God who has no wrath. The last thing any of us want is a God who does not experience wrath. Because a God who does not experience wrath is a God who can't hate sin and evil. And if God can't hate sin and evil, then he doesn't care to do away with sin and evil. And you and I are really quite stuck in a mess. And so Paul is saying to these Ephesians, you now know, even though you didn't, you now know that you were basically on a dead-end path to hell. You were not a masterpiece. And uh, then he comes out with... um, with this amazing statement, and again, I, I, Dr. Geyerton is such a great speaker. He mentioned this last night and maybe stole a little bit of my thunder. Um, but, and I think in Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, we find the greatest but in Scripture. The, the B-U-T, not the B-U-T-T kind. The, the, the greatest but in all of Scripture. And so what I want to talk about next, which is what Paul is doing in these first 10 verses, he's told them, that they are a masterpiece. He tells them that in verse 10. But by way of getting there, he first establishes for them that you once were not a masterpiece. But then he's going to say, you, be, you have become a masterpiece. You were all just a mess of sinners walking a dead-end path to the wrath of God. But something happened. And you became a masterpiece. It's one of the most beautiful verses to me. It's one of my favorite verses in Scripture. Paul puts it this way. But... But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Now, if you didn't notice it when we read through this earlier, an important thing to notice 
is how much Paul likes the word rich and lavish and terms of extravagance whenever he's talking about the grace of God. I want you to notice this. He talks about the wrath of God, but he doesn't describe it. God's got wrath. But when he's going to talk about the grace of God, he got, he's rich in grace. His, he's extravagant in grace. His grace abounds. In other words, God's got wrath, but he's got a lot more grace than he does wrath. His primary motivation is not wrath. His primary motivation is grace. And in any measure that he's wrathful, it is simply because he's so full of grace. And um, as you notice, his great love for us, who is rich in mercy. And then this phrase, made us alive with Christ. And Paul is going to parse this out a little bit more, this idea of being made alive with Christ in verses 6 and 7. So he says this, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed to us in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. If you have read Paul's letters very much, and this is especially the case in Colossians and Ephesians, Paul uses this phrase, with Christ, or the one he uses even more than that is, in Christ. And so a fundamental part of Paul's entire theology is this idea that God takes us up in Christ so that we are participating in Jesus. So Paul's idea here is that when you come to faith in Christ, you are spiritually put into Christ so that you die with Christ, the death that he died to your sin, so that you die to that sin in him and with him. But then Paul gets really excited about this part, because what that means is that in a spiritual sense, if you have been put into him to die the death that he died to your sin, then you have been put in him to be raised up into new life. So that when you become a follower of Jesus and you come to faith in him, you are participating not only in death to your sin, but you are participating in a resurrection to new life. Not one that you make for yourself, but one that God gives to you by grace by allowing you to enter into participation in Jesus. There's one Pauline scholar, his name is Michael Gorman, who says the whole deal, the whole the whole of Paul's theology can be summed up in participation in Christ. That what God is doing is putting us in Jesus so that what God did in Jesus, he does for us through Jesus as he puts us in Jesus. And then Paul gets even more excited. He, this is back in chapter one. You may remember yesterday we talked about this. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. How is it that Paul can put such stock in a little group of 30 to 50 people in a city of 50,000 pagans? How is it that he can say those 30 to 50 people, they are the masterpiece of God. They are what God is doing. He can say it because God has given them the power of Christ. They have been put in Christ so that they now live in that city in resurrection power, giving witness to Jesus through the life of their little tiny community. I mentioned participation in Christ. You see this in John 3, 3 and 16, the famous passage is about you must be born again and for God so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. It's participatory language. Paul talks about this in Romans 6, 3 through 11 in his great teaching on baptism where he uses particip participation language big time there that we are in Christ as we are baptized, that baptism is symbolic of what happens to us in Christ. Philippians 3, 10 through 11, Paul makes this statement where he says, I want to know the sufferings of Jesus that I may know the resurrection of Jesus. So that Paul sees his whole life as participating in Jesus. That where Jesus would have suffered for a human being, he will suffer for another human being so that he can then experience being raised up to new life through that suffering. Now, I am, um, that's Mount Rushmore, if you're not familiar with it. And when Paul says that the Ephesians are the masterpiece of God, that they are what God is doing, 
He wants them to understand that other things, as he said in the first part, because so much has changed for them, right? He's saying to them that the things you once found beautiful are now different for you. I'm going to get to Mount Rushmore about this in just a minute. The things that were once beautiful to you, the bathhouses, the stuff going on in the theater, the big dinner parties, the temple of Artemis, all of that was once beautiful to you. But that's no longer beautiful to you because what is beautiful to you now is who Jesus is and who you are becoming as a community in Jesus. And so it behooves us to ask ourselves, how has our becoming masterpieces in Jesus Christ changed the way we experience beauty in the world? How has it changed what is beautiful? My dad had a massive conversion experience. He was an alcoholic. Went to the lake one day to fish. He had wanted to go to a river, the New River in West Virginia, which is really, really dangerous. He wanted to fish in that river. My mom said, if you go to that river and get drunk, we won't be here when you get back. He said, I'm going to the river to drink. For some reason, he didn't know later that it was the Holy Spirit talking to him. He decided to go to his favorite reservoir to fish instead of going to the river. He got to the reservoir, cracked open the first of several six packs he had bought, went to take a drink, and lo and behold, for the first time in his life, found he couldn't drink it could even put it to his lips. And he took all of his six packs and made some happy fish because he tossed them open out into the lake. And my dad will say to this day, my whole desire for alcohol changed. I didn't want it anymore. I didn't like it anymore. Well, why? Because of Jesus. He then went to my home pastor's house, uh, who's still shaped the way I think a lot about pastoral ministry today. And Reverend Gibson led him to Jesus with a book by E. Stanley Jones. Some of you may know E. Stanley Jones. This is what I'm talking about, that when we become God's masterpiece people, what we find beautiful changes. And this leads me to Mount Rushmore, because a few years ago, we went on a cross-country trip. And on the leg back, we saw nine national parks, several national historical sites, and a couple of presidential museums over three weeks with a conference for our denominational group. It's called The Vineyard, tucked in the middle. It was a whirlwind three weeks, but memorable for the rest. We will remember it forever. And Mount Rushmore was on our leg back. And I was really excited to see Mount Rushmore because one of my favorite movies is North by Northwest. It's an old Alfred Hitchcock flick. And at the end of the Alfred Hitchcock movie, North by Northwest, the climactic scene with Cary Grant and Eva Marie Saint takes place on not the real Mount Rushmore, but a movie stage mock-up of Mount Rushmore. And so I was so excited to go and see Mount Rushmore, and, and I was so disappointed when I got there. I had the strangest spiritual experience of my entire life at Mount Rushmore. Now, before I say this, let me tell you, I am a glad American. I, I really do love and appreciate our nation. But I felt so out of sorts when I got here, because if you've been there, you know when you walk up to the thing now, and this wouldn't have been the case when they filmed North by Northwest, there are these huge granite columns with the flags of all the states. And you walk up this, you walk up these, through all of these columns with these flags, and there's this big granite building in front of you, and you walk around the side. And then you come into this big amphitheater, and the centerpiece of the amphitheater are the four gigantic heads of the four great men. And I remember saying to my to Kira, I feel really uncomfortable here. I didn't expect it, but I felt so uncomfortable. Why? Because my estimation of what is beautiful and what is to be worshiped has changed. I didn't want I felt uncomfortable in a setting where I was being led and encouraged to worship four great men. I want to be in settings that lead me to worship Jesus. Because my estimation of what is beautiful has changed. Now, we walked down to one of the older viewing areas, and I really enjoyed Mount Rushmore from one of the older viewing areas where I could appreciate the sculpture, think about what these men had done and the contributions they had made in a setting where I felt like I wasn't being encouraged to worship the four great men. And that's an example of how our estimation of what is beautiful changes and that's what, when we become God's masterpieces, what becomes beautiful to us are the things that are beautiful to God. And this leads us right back to where we began this section of the teaching. What is beautiful to God? Your local church. Your little local church. With all its warts and with all its faults, it ought to be one of the most beautiful things that you ever set your eyes upon when you get together. Not your building, not your pulpit, not your stained glass windows, but the people who gather there ought to be one of the most beautiful things that you ever encounter. 
May God open your eyes to that and open my eyes to that. You know, I deal in the weeds with people's lives every week. I get to experience some of the ugly things that they're going with. And sometimes I get to the end of a day and my wife has to remind me, God loves these people. They are the beauty of God. They are the masterpiece of God. God loves them. Now, I want to make a shift then to what I think many of you have wanted to, to, to talk about this week, at least from what I can hear, was this idea of uh, unity. By the way, he says we've been created to do good works, which God has prepared for us in advance. I love this because Paul is saying, you don't even get credit for the good works you do. The good works you do, you're only doing because you've been put in Jesus and Jesus is doing them through you. So you can even say, look at me, what a good person I am. You have to say, look at what Jesus is doing in me. Because otherwise, if it weren't for Jesus, I'd be doing anything but these good things I'm doing. Let me tell you some of the things I'd be doing if it weren't for Jesus. So I want to start this next part by talking about um, a painting. Until about 30 years ago, if you... The most recognized, the art scholars tell us the most recognizable painting in all the world was the Mona Lisa. So I love, I'm kind of, I like classic things. You may have guessed that since I mentioned North by Northwest. And so uh, Nat King Cole is one of my favorite musicians of all time. And I love the old song, Mona Lisa, Mona Lisa, men have named you. But so for the, I, this is why I don't sing, you see. So for, uh, for the longest time, uh, the Mona Lisa was the most recognizable painting in the world. But this began to change about 30 years ago as Vincent van Gogh became really, really popular. And so Starry Night, his Starry Night is now the most, the most recognizable painting, uh, according to the, the surveys. And uh, Starry Night's a beautiful painting. But what I want you to notice about Starry Night is that if I take any particular color out of this painting it will be less of a masterpiece than it was before I took the color out. So imagine if I take out the deep yellow, it becomes something less than it is. If I take out the lighter blues, it becomes something less than it is. If I take out the deep greens that are in the, the trees in the very front, it becomes something less than it is. No part of this painting can be removed without making it less of a masterpiece than it really is. And this is a good metaphor for the church. Paul has told us that the church is a masterpiece. And so we, because he says the church is a masterpiece, that means that if we take any particular person or group of people out of your local congregation, your local congregation becomes less of a masterpiece than it was before that person left it. Some of you have experienced that in churches as you've lost saints. The people who planted your churches and started your churches and were faithful and you, you miss their presence. You have a sense that you're something less than you were now that you, than you were than when you had them. And if you look at this painting, you will notice that the yellow is quite a different color than that deep, deep green of the trees in the front of the painting. And so a masterpiece is always made up of things that are very different from other things. On the color scale, a masterpiece always reflects things that are very different, that are being coordinated together. And Paul, in this next section of Ephesians, actually the next two sections of Ephesians, is going to hammer home on this notion that the church is a masterpiece because of its diversity. Now, let me just pause on the word diversity. The word diversity has become a politically charged term. When I use the word diversity, you do not need to hear me articulating any particular stance about how anybody should proceed with anything in the political realm. I will leave that up to you, and I, brought my, I left my opinions at home, and I'm not even going to pick them up at home when we leave from there to go on to the beach next week, okay? I just don't want to do opinions like that for the next couple weeks, right? So um, when I use the term diversity, I'm talking about different people being brought together in a context where they form a masterpiece of God, Okay, so don't read don't read social sociopolitics into that that term. Okay, in in very many ways, I believe that the the word the English word diversity is a word that the church has to reclaim from the way it's used socially and politically these days. Because what Paul is going to teach us here is that the church was the first multi ethnic diverse community on the face of the earth. So. 
I want you to think just a minute, and this is just a quick one. The first thing that comes to your mind, I want you to share with the person next to you, what two groups would you say in our American context are most different from one another or would have the hardest time being shoulder to shoulder if you ask them to work, we'll say, a jigsaw puzzle? <laughs> I heard uh, I, I heard a lot of Democrats and Republicans come out, so <laughs> it's the one, that one, that one and the race issue are the two that are in front of us the most these days. It, they're, they're hard for us to get away from. Well, if, if I had asked this question in the city of Ephesus around 60 AD, the late 50s, 60 AD, probably when Paul was roughly writing this letter, if I'd asked anybody on the streets in Ephesus, tell me the two groups of people who are most different from each other. Nobody probably would have said, oh, the Ethiopians and the Romans. And nobody probably would have said, oh, the Egyptians and the people who live over the Moors who live over in Spain. If I'd asked anybody on the street of Ephesus, tell me the two groups of people who are most different in this world. If I'd asked a Gentile that question, the Gentile would have said, that's easy. It's the Jews and the Gentiles. If I'd asked a Jew that question, the Jew would have said, that's easy. It's us and the Gentiles. There were no two groups in the first century who were more diametrically opposite of one another than the Jews and everybody else, right? And remember what I said yesterday, everybody else had kind of this whole religious stew going on, this religious soup that they were just all swimming in, and then you've got the Jews going, it's one true God and it's our God. And if you want to get in on what he's doing, you have, to, you have to be a worshiper of our God. And nobody else liked that. So let me just quickly move through some of the key differences between the Gentiles and the Jews. Yes. <laughs> we're going to talk about that some. Yeah. The Gentile, actually on Thursday, I think it is, we're going to talk, or Friday, we're going to talk a little bit more about some of the things that have impacted the church spiritually. The Gentiles are polytheists. They worship many gods. Pick anyone you want. Just make sure you uh, you you worship the uh, the ones that are most powerful. Um, it was Plato. I think it was Plato who, on his deathbed, Plato had never really been a big believer in the gods. But as Plato is dying, he wanted to hedge his bets and said, "Go and leave a dove for the god Archelaus for me." Just on the safe side, so just worship the gods. Polytheists. The Jews, of course, were fierce monotheists. One of the biggest differences between Jews and Gentiles were sexual ethics. The Gentiles practiced loose sexual ethics. The Jews had very restrictive sexual ethic. I'm going to make an aside here. I've got to move quick to get finished. When somebody says to you, and I still have, I, I still have a very traditional Judeo-Christian sexual ethic. When somebody says to you, Jesus never talked about homosexuality, that is simply not true. When Jesus talked about sexual sin, he used a Greek word called porneia. Can you hear what we get from that? When Jesus used the Greek word porneia, he was referring to everything that is prohibited in Leviticus 18 through 21. And so Jesus didn't talk about homosexuality, but he also didn't talk about bestiality. He didn't talk about incest. He didn't talk about any of that. Specifically, but whenever he used the word porneia, he's referring to the traditional Jewish sexual ethic, which prohibited all of those things. There were few restrictions about what you wore or what you ate for the Gentiles, and the Jews had many restrictions for clothing and food. You weren't even supposed to wear clothing that had materials that came from two different sources, right? You know, don't eat shellfish, no pigs. Even to this day, if you go to Israel, there are a couple of pig farms up in the Golan Heights, and they keep the pigs on large oak oak floors that they've built so that the pigs don't touch the Israeli ground. Gentiles, of course, were uncircumcised. Jews were circumcised. The males were circumcised. The Gentiles were pluralistic. This is the God soup that I'm talking about, sort of the spiritual soup. The Jews were, were fealty or faithful to the one true God that they believed was Yahweh. The Gentiles had multiple temples and shrines that you might go into numerous of them every day. And the Jews had one temple where, where the one God dwells in the one holy city of Jerusalem. 
There were no groups more different. Now, I'm not going to cover these passages, but one of the early controversies in the in the very beginning of the church was Gentiles coming to Jesus and what would happen to Gentiles when they came to Jesus. In other words, could Gentiles go straight through to become followers of Jesus or did Gentiles have to become Jewish? to become followers of Jesus. That would mean they had to be circumcised, they had to start obeying the food laws and the clothing laws and all the ritualistic laws of the Jews in order to become followers of Jesus. This is resolved in Acts 10 when Peter gets, goes to the house that's full of Gentiles. It's hard for us to know how shocking that was, but Peter, would, Peter was putting himself in a situation where he'd always been taught he now had to go to the temple and like take a ton of ritual baths for just having been in a house with a bunch of Gentiles. So Acts 10, Acts 15, where this is resolved, and the early church decides Gentiles can become followers of Jesus. The only thing we ask them to do is obey the sexual ethic of the Jews and don't eat food sacrificed to idols. Then Romans 1 through 4, this is the whole theme of the first cha few chapters of Romans, how Jews and Gentiles are, start in the same place. We all start as sinners in need of grace. Uh there are numerous problems between Jews and Gentile followers in Paul's letters. In Romans 9 through 11, Paul deals with the issue of why are so many more Gentiles coming to Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, than the Jewish people are. And he paints this picture where he, he has this prophetic picture where he believes in the end times, mass numbers of Jewish people will come to faith in Jesus. One of the latest statistics I saw said that today in the nation of Israel, on the average weekend, there are more Messianic Jews, those are Jews following Jesus in worship, than there are Jews in synagogue on the weekend. Romans 14, Paul deals again with how Jews get along with Gentiles. 1 Corinthians 7, 17 through 24, he deals with it. 1 Corinthians 8, he deals with it. And so in Ephesus, there are no specific problems that Paul seems to be dealing with, but we can well assume that Ephesus had the same problem all the other churches did. How do you get Jews and Gentiles to get along with each other in the same place? Because the problem is if the Jews leave, they're less of a masterpiece than God wants them to be. If the Gentiles leave, they're less of a masterpiece, less of a witness to the city. And so that's a lot of what Paul is going to deal with here. And so he says this. I'm going to skip that for time's sake. He says this about Jesus, for he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one. So if these two groups are going to stay together as different as they are, they've got one source of peace. That one source of peace is Jesus. And that they are both participating in Jesus. Now, what I want to talk about next is the rest of this passage. I want to come at from three angles. The first several, the first couple of verses of this next passage, I want to look at from a Gentile angle. Then I want us to look at the next few verses, thinking about them as the Jewish angle. And then the final one, all together, the Jews and the Gentiles all together, and we'll call that the church angle. Okay? So in uh, uh, Ephesians 2, 11 through 13... Just want to read that and then make a few comments about it. 11 through 13, therefore, and he's talking to the Gentiles here. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenant of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So the first thing Paul is saying to the Gentiles, who would have been a majority in every church, church. So the church starts as a Jewish construct, but as the Gentiles come in, there are a lot more Gentiles than Jews. So in every church in the first century, the Gentiles eventually become a really significant majority. They could easily just have their way. And eventually in church history, that's unfortunately what happened. So that to this day, Jewish people, even those who become followers of Jesus, want to have nothing to do with the church. So, and it's because we didn't listen to what Paul taught us. Because Paul says to these Gentiles basically this, don't be haughty because you are the majority. A responsibility of being the Gentile majority in the church is exercising love to those who are the minority. Appreciating the minority, loving the minority, respecting the minority in the church. Then he reminds them of this. 
It's easy for the majority to think the majority was chosen first, but don't you forget God chose the minority first. In fact, the whole reason you're here, Gentiles, is because God was gracious enough to let you in on what he was already doing in the nation of Israel. Those were promises for them, and you're only in on this out of grace. Don't you forget, you, you, I love the story uh, of the woman who comes to Jesus, and, and she begs Jesus to, I think was it, to heal her son, and she's a, she's a, a, a Gentile woman, and, and she says, I can't do that for you. And she says, Jesus, even the dogs get the crumbs from the table. And Jesus says, I'll do it, you've got faith. That story is painful to those of us who are Gentile believers, but not Jewish believers. Jewish believers know that the promises were for them first. The story of Jesus there illustrates for us that we're there by even more grace than maybe the Jews are in in some measure, that we're getting in on those things. So Gentile majority, don't forget that. Then he said, don't remember that God blesses you through Israel. Had God not chosen Israel, you could never have been blessed. This is back in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. He's selecting Abraham to be the father of a nation that will bless every nation on earth. So God blesses the Gentiles through Israel. Then he sa- and he says, you've been brought into Israel's blessings through Jesus. Jesus is the way you Gentiles get in on what God was, had promised to Israel. Now, what becomes difficult for many of the Jews is that Paul is also saying, hey, Jesus is how you now get in on what God is doing for Israel too. Then in 2, 14 through 18, we come to the Jewish angle. And in this section, he's going to mention barriers that divide, that have been set aside. So there were these barriers that divided the Jews and the Gentiles that have been set aside in Jesus. And, 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 and the two key of these, I call them Jewish identity markers. The two key identity markers for the Jewish people surrounded by all of these Gentiles in the culture were Sabbath keeping and circumcision. Circumcision and Sabbath keeping. If you wanted to know who was a Jew, you could go to the local gym where they exercise naked and it would be obvious to you who was a Jew. You also then could watch what people did beginning Friday at sundown through Saturday evening at sundown. And if that person never left their house, never went shopping, never went to work, you could be pretty certain that they were a Jew. Remember I mentioned yesterday the Romans had no day off in their culture. Everything always kept churning. But you've got these Jews who just stop. And what that meant is that for Jewish people, circumcision and Sabbath keeping became really important because it was the way they kept themselves distinct from everybody around them. Everybody else is doing all this stuff, but we're Jewish and we circumcise our boys and we keep the Sabbath. And this became a real point of contention for the Jews because they felt like the Gentiles. You've got to circumcise your baby boys and you've got to keep the Sabbath religiously the same way we keep the Sabbath if you're going to be in on this thing. Now, Paul said, here's the deal. If you're a Jew, if you're in this minority in the church, you don't use your Jewish identity markers to divide the body. You can't divide yourself from the Gentiles because they don't want to circumcise their baby boys and because they don't keep the Sabbath as strictly as you do and the food laws and the clothing laws and all of the other rules. And Paul is in essence saying, it's okay if you're a Jewish Christian, a Jewish follower of Jesus, still do that, but you don't put that over on everybody else to have to do that. If you're a Jew, if you're a Jew. And then he also talks about this barrier in the temple being gone. Now, this barrier in the temple, and I thought I had a picture of it, but maybe I forgot here. You know, the temple was broken into courtyards very famously, right? When Jesus overturns the tables in the temple, do you know why he did that? They had taken the court for the Gentile believer, Gentile Gentile believers in, in Yahweh, and they had filled it with all the shops. So that if you were a Gentile, the only place you could get near to the Jewish God to worship him was in that court of the Gentiles, but the Jews had filled it up with shopping. That's why he says it shall, it's written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, because you're intentionally keeping the Gentiles from getting in to worship God. Because the Gentiles couldn't go into the next court, the court of women. They couldn't go into the next court, the court of men. They certainly couldn't go into the next court, the court of the priests. And there was not a snowball's chance in the Sahara Desert that they could go into the Holy of Holies ever into the presence of God. And so the the temple is set up with all of these barriers. And Paul says to the Ephesian Jews in the church, the Ephesian Jewish Christians, for lack of a better way to put it, that's gone. That's gone. Remember the temple curtain tour? No more division. It's gone. 
does not exist. So if you are in the minority, you can't hold the Gentile majority to the same standards that you hold yourself to because they don't have to go through any more barriers to get to God except Jesus Christ. And guess what? Don't you forget, you Jewish Christians, that you can't get to God now unless you go through Jesus Christ. You're all on equal footing. So you, the barrier in the temple is gone. Now, finally, the church angle. But before I talk about the church angle, I want to tell you a story. My wife and I have made a, a, a couple of trips to Israel. We like taking small groups to Israel. The next time, we're going to go in a couple of years for our 25th wedding anniversary and just, just us and, and our kids and, and spend a few weeks just traveling and doing things on our own. But we've been a part of tour groups the first couple times, taking small groups from our church uh, to Israel to, to visit. And um, one of the things I love about our trips is that we, we've made a few contacts with churches there that are comprised of Jews and Gentiles. There just are not many churches on the face of the earth that are comprised of Jews and Gentiles. And in Israel, they don't call them churches because for many Jews, the church is seen as, look, whether we like it or not, the German Lutheran state church and the Roman Catholic church let the Holocaust happen. The church was responsible for massive persecution of Jews for hundreds of years in Europe. So they call them congregations, which is what they also call the synagogues, because church is just a dirty word. That's unfortunate because church just means gathering, gathering of God's people. But it's become a bad, it's become a, not a good term for Jewish Jews, and so they don't use it. They call themselves congregations. So we are in the congregation that exists today on Mount Carmel, as in Mount Carmel where Elijah met the prophets of Baal. Okay, It's a long mount, so we're not in the exact place where they think that event happened. But there's a church there, and it's the most amazing church because, first of all, the church was started by Gentiles from the United States. But the majority in the church now are not Gentiles from the United States. The majority in the church now are Jews from all over the world, France, Russia, the United States, South America, you name it, Jews from all over the world who have gone now to become Israeli citizens who worship in this church. The worship services are in four languages. Do you get little earpieces you can put on? The slides around the room have it in four different languages. In the four different languages, I think it's Russian and French and English and Hebrew. It's, it's absolutely unbelievable. So we're in this church, and we're staying in the church's guest house a couple of miles away. It's got several rooms in it. And that Saturday morning after we attended worship in the church, we were invited, I believe it was later that day, this has only happened to me once in my life, we were invited to a circumcision party. And I thought, wow, um, that's not an invitation I want to take. <laughs> but the circumcision event happened in the basement of the guest house we were staying in. They have a large teaching and worship room in the basement. And it just so happened that the little baby boy who was being circumcised is the grandson of a Japanese Christian and a Jewish woman from New York who would remind you almost entirely of Barbara Streisand when she's in a Jewish mood talks that way. And it's their grandson. And they go all down in the basement and they sing songs. And there's a rabbi who's friendly to the Christian, to the, to the church there. He comes in. The rabbis are the ones who do the circumcision there. And they circumcise the little boy downstairs. And, and my, I, my wife and I didn't go down. And the people we were traveling with, two of us went down, two of us, the four of us didn't. Everybody comes back up. And, and I was glad to go to the party on the second floor. I did not want to go to the circumcision. Like, I don't remember mine. I don't need to remember anybody else's, right? And, and, Everybody comes upstairs, and guys, I'm looking around, and there are Russian Jews, and French Jews, and Gentiles, seriously, from South America, and Germany, and the United States, and a guy from Tokyo who's the grandfather of the half-Jewish, half-Japanese baby. <laughs> that is being circumcised. And the Gentiles are celebrating the circumcision right along with the Jews. And it's an image of the last thing that Paul writes here. This word. And everybody there, I this day, I always joke, everybody there was happy but the baby. He, he looked like he would have rather been anywhere else at that point in time. But the party was so joyous as all these different people celebrated together. And why could they celebrate together? It's because of this last word Paul gives. And he tells them, I'm just going to read verses 19 through 20 because it's worth reading. 
Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives in his spirit. So what was going on that day? Well, that day in that guest house, we were all stones in a new household for God. God didn't need a temple in Jerusalem that day. He didn't even need the church back on Mount Carmel. He just needed the basement and a fellowship hall and a guest house to build a household for himself. We have the same foundation, whether we're Jewish, Gentile, black, white, Republican, Democrat. We have the same foundation. The apostles and the prophets who down through the ages have given their lives to give us the story of Jesus. We have the same foundation. We have the same cornerstone before the the apostles and the prophets. His name is Jesus. You know what happens if a cornerstone is not laid properly? The whole house will eventually collapse. Jesus is laid properly for us. And, And we are well built on him in the power of the Holy Spirit. We are all stones in a new temple housing the presence of God. I experienced God more in that party that day than any time I have gone to the Western Wall in Jerusalem. Why? Because things changed. God no longer needs a temple in Jerusalem. He just needs masterpiece people gathering wherever they gather to enjoy the life he's given them in Jesus. And there God dwells. And this brings me back to that thesis statement I mentioned yesterday. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth. And so I want to conclude with this question. Does your local church show the world what it looks like for diverse people to live together at peace in Jesus? Does it give witness to the power of Jesus in the world and the goodness of the kingdom of God? Do people find God dwelling in the presence of your body when it is gathered? Because you're all centered on Jesus, no matter how different you are. So Father, I want to ask you to bless each and every one of these folks as they go through the day. And uh, especially just as I did yesterday, Father, want to ask that you would um, give them new eyes to see their local congregations. Give them new hearts and passions for their local congregations. Bless us all today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Tomorrow we'll uh, look at chapter 3.